And there's really something beautiful about this unnamed, unknown couple and that they invite the Lord Jesus to this special occasion. And I think it is so tragic today when the Lord Jesus is left out of a wedding, when he is really not invited. After all, he is the author of marriage. He thought it all up. He ought to be invited. God ought to be at the center of every marriage ceremony. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, The Miracle at Cana. As we continue our study in the Gospel of John today, we come to the narrative of the first miracle that Jesus performed, changing the water to wine at the wedding feast. This event, aside from the miraculous, is important because it officially began the ministry of Jesus Christ. Let's join Pastor Carl now in John chapter 2, verse 1, as he begins. Take your Bibles, please, this morning, turn to John chapter 2. Some of you are here for the very first time, and you'll be interested to know that we've just begun a series on the Gospel of John. We're working our way through this book chapter by chapter and verse by verse. This morning I come to the second chapter where we find the miracle at Cana. Now there's a lot of talk in our day about miracles. And there's so much bogus talk because it's not really rooted in the Word of God. All you have to do is turn on the television. And you can see some of these shysters who are at work. Now, I'm careful when I say that because we know that it's a sin to attribute to Satan the work of the Holy Spirit. It's also a sin to attribute the work of the Holy Spirit are the work of Satan to the Holy Spirit. However, there are some great, wonderful, marvelous, glorious, beautiful miracles that are found in Scripture. In fact, let me say right off, I believe in miracles. I believe that God did miracles, and I believe that God can still do miracles. And maybe here in the days ahead, you're going to hear a whole lot more about miracles than you've heard about in a long, long time. Because we're coming into that section of the Gospel of John that deals with the subject of the miraculous. If you remember from our introductory session together, we saw that this book divides into three major parts. Chapters 1 through 12, we deal with the signs of God's Son. And in this section, he introduces us to the fact that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. And so he demonstrates that he is indeed Lord. And we will see the Jews in that day who, under close and careful scrutiny, will look at his life and examine his claims. That ch those chapters take place in the course of a few years. When you come to chapter 13 through chapter 17, you turn the corner and you move from the signs or miracles of God's Son to the secrets of God's Son. And in this section we find what we call the Upper Room Discourse, and we find the High Priestly Prayer. Chapters 1 through 12 really teach us how to establish a relationship with Christ, where these chapters teach us how to grow in that relationship with Christ. The first is designed to help people to come to faith. The second, on how we should live once we have come to faith. And of course, this section deals with just a few hours out of the life and ministry of Christ. When you come to the final section, chapters 18 through 21, you have basically a picture of the supremacy of God's Son. And in these chapters, you have a dramatic demonstration of His passion and of His glorious resurrection over His victory on sin and over death. And of course, this takes place in the course of just a few weeks. Now, we said the key verse 
because we're told it's the key verse, I suppose, in John 20, 30, and 31. He tells us why he wrote. He said, these things I wrote that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that in believing you might have life in his name. And so with that contextual base, let's begin by reading our text as we come to the first in a parade and series of miracles done by the Son of God, demonstrating that He is Lord. John chapter 2, beginning now in verse 1. And on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited and His disciples to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to Him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what, have I do to, what, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, this miracle, we're told, is the beginning of his signs. It's the first in a list of carefully selected miracles here in the Gospel of John. Now, if you know any of the traditions, then you know that some have claimed that Jesus did miracles when he was a little boy. One common second century tradition is when he would play with his buddies they would make clay pigeons together, and on occasion he would touch one, and it would supernaturally come to life and fly off. Interesting story, but absolutely no fact in it, because the Bible is very clear that this was the first of all the miracles that he had ever performed. And if you believe in the authority of Scripture, then you must emphatically reject all of the apocryphal accounts. Interestingly, the first of these seven miracles took place at a wedding. The last took place at a funeral. The first is conducted in the gladdest hour, I suppose the last for many in the saddest hour. And we'll see that these seven miracles were recorded for a reason. Now with those introductory remarks, let's take into the finer points of the text. There in the back of your bulletin, you can see I have an outline provided for you, and we've divided this passage into three sections. First, the site of the miracle in verses 1 through 2. Uh, the situation for the miracle in verses 3 through 5, and then the significance from the miracle in verses 6 through 11. So let's look at each section and see the timeless principles that God gives us for the day in which we live. First, the site of the miracle. Now it's important that we set this scene in its chronological and geographical context. In fact, when you read the opening verse of the chapter, your attention is immediately arrested. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, there's a lot in this opening verse, and we need to put it in its original context. I think it's helpful, maybe it would be helpful to review for a moment, to try to undo um, where we've been so far, 
so that we can understand this phrase, the third day. What does he mean by the third day? What is the context of that statement? We'll go back for a moment. Turn back to chapter 1 and verse 19. If you remember, verses 1 through 18 form the prologue of this gospel. We studied three weeks on the prologue, the introduction to this gospel. And then beginning in verse 19, you have the first of three days that are recorded from the life of John the Baptist. We read in the witness, and this is the witness of John, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? That's the first day in the account. That's day number one. It goes all the way through verse 28. Day number two begins in verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming in him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's day two, covered all the way down through verse 34. Day three, verse 35. And the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. Day three of John's ministry, going all the way down through verse 42. Now, John the Baptist drops out of the picture for the time being. We're going to see one more day recorded in his life in this gospel a little bit later on. Verse 43 begins, the next day, he, now speaking of Christ, purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip. And he said to him, follow me. That's day four. Um, now, the focus is not on John the Baptist, but the Lord Jesus. And in the verses that follow, the calling of Philip and Nathaniel, which carry us all the way through the end of the chapter. So when you come to chapter 2 and verse 1, and you read, and on the third day, he's talking about the third day of the first full week of Christ's life as it's recorded in this gospel. On the third day, referring to the third day after the calling of Philip, and Nathaniel, the third day after the calling of these two men in the first full week. It's the third day after the last day that's mentioned in chapter 1. So on the third day, he calls after this, we find the context of this chapter. Now remember, day 4, on day 4, he called Philip and Nathaniel. On the third day later, this is chapter 2 and verse 1. Now we are at the seventh day, which is very significant. It's on the seventh day that this marriage happened, which incidentally corresponds with what we find in the book of Genesis. On the seventh day, we find the very first marriage that occurs. But notice, too, that this verse gives us not simply a jump in time, but also a jump in geography. He's speaking here about a new place in Cana, of Galilee. Let me see. I don't think this map's going to help you a whole lot. There's some in the back of your Bible. We just can't see it. But just look over on the far left side of the uh, map and you'll see three blocks. The bottom block, Judea. You go north of Judea. You come into a place called Samaria. You go north of Samaria. You come into a place called Galilee. There's a few other provinces off to the right. But this is all Israel. All right, Israel in the day of Christ. There are three basic areas or what we might call counties today that we're going to be concerned with in this gospel. The southern section is what we call Judea. We're going to find cities like Bethlehem and Bethany and Jerusalem in that section of Israel. You go north, and by the way, Jerusalem is very important in this gospel at least four times. 
uh, we're going to find the Lord Jesus in this place called Jerusalem. You go north and you come to a place called Samaria. Just one chapter and the Gospel of John takes place in this locale, if you remember, with a woman at the well. You go north of that and you come into the northernmost province known as Nazareth. And in there you're going to find cities, I mean Galilee. And in there you're going to find cities like Nazareth and Capernaum and Cana. That's where we are this morning, Cana. This wedding took place about five miles outside of Nazareth. Now, if you put the time together with the geography, remember back in chapter 1 and verse 28, John the Baptist is involved in a baptismal ministry in Bethany beyond the Jordan. You can't see it here on this map, but Bethany is up there in the northwest corner of the sea, uh, of this uh, Dead Sea. Down in um, Judea, that southernmost block, up in that body of water down there at the bottom, at the upper left-hand corner is a place called Bethany. And of course, when we come to chapter 1 and verse 23, it says the next day he went forth into Galilee. So they left Bethany down in the south, and they go about 80 miles north, all the way up into this place called Galilee. Verse 44 is going to mention uh, some cities up there in the north and so forth. And then we read in this same chapter, in verse 12, chapter 2, after this he went down to Capernaum. But if you can see on the map on the back of your Bible, it doesn't look like he went down at all. In fact, it looks like he went up from Cana. Now, we tend to use the terms up and down directionally in terms of north and south. The Bible doesn't do it that way. It's important for you to understand that as you read this gospel. It uses the terms up and down in terms of topography, in terms of altitude. He was higher in altitude in Cana, and he goes down to Capernaum, which is at sea level there at the Sea of Galilee. And when we come to verse 13 next time in chapter 2, we're going to see that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It looks south on your map. He's in the northernmost province, and he's going all the way down to the bottom of the map. But understand, while he's traveling south, he's going up in altitude. Jerusalem is built up there next to the Mount of Olives. Okay, so the geography is important here. It fits perfectly. They're down in Bethany. They head up into Galilee. Enough time to transpire. So when we come to this opening sentence, it makes sense on the third day. There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and that's where the Lord Jesus finds himself. And notice, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, Mary is never named in this gospel. She's just called the mother of Jesus. And how appropriate, because remember, John wants to focus on the Lord Jesus. He wants to paint him and exalt him above all Else. And so I'm sure it's not accidental, especially at this time in human history, where some cultic practices on Mary had already begun to form and to develop, later to be full-blown in Roman Catholicism. Now let me just say this. It's really unfortunate that in Protestantism today, we tend to give Mary the honor that is due her name. She is a great lady of all the ladies in the face of the earth. God chose her to carry his beloved son. 
But understand, Mary is not elevated to the position that some people elevate her to. She's not a mediatrix. Now, kids, a mediator is someone between two people, okay, children? But a mediatrix, that's the feminine of the same Word, all right? So some people say that Mary is a go between between man and the Lord Jesus, her son. And the passage that Roman Catholics use to defend that doctrine is the one that we're in this morning. They argue that Mary was successful in getting her request with the wine problem. And so we have a biblical basis for a go between, a mediatrix between the Lord Jesus and Mary. Now, if you use that reasoning, you might as well make most of us mediators or mediatrix, because if you've ever gone to the Lord Jesus in a need and you saw him answer your prayer, then you could really claim, I suppose, the same thing. But John never mentions her name. Doesn't want to draw attention to her. And by the way, the scripture says there is one mediator between God and man. We just studied at the end of chapter 2 that the ladder that stretched from earth to heaven, seen there in the Old Testament, Jesus says is himself. He is the one between God and man. And so there are some errors that began to take place and they further developed in Catholicism. Later they said, well, Mary was immaculately conceived, that she was born without a sin nature. Well, that doesn't make sense because her genealogy in Luke is traced all the way back to Adam. She's a descendant of Adam like us. She's not some kind of special creation of God. And, and of course, they didn't make that an official doctrine until the 1850s. And then a few years after that, they said that when Mary died, she didn't actually rot in a grave somewhere, that she was bodily assumed up into heaven. They call this the Assumption of Mary, one of the feast days in the Roman Catholic Church. And so Mariology has developed with time. And interestingly, the old Babylonian pagan title, Queen of Heaven, is the title that Roman Catholics give to her. And so the faithful are to pray to her. And if you really think about it, it really almost deifies Mary. It puts her on the level of God. It makes her almost omniscient. I mean, if she, like God, can hear and separate and comprehend millions of prayers in all the various languages of the earth from all the parts of the world, then it makes her almost godlike. Now, understand, that's not the picture we find of Mary in Holy Scripture. So I don't think it's by accident that God the Holy Spirit, as he inspires John, leaves her unnamed. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, don't forget, weddings in this day were different than they are in our day. In those days, number one, it was the parents who chose the mate for their children. I mean, how would you like that, young people? <laughs> you have to believe in God's sovereignty and that your parents knew what they were doing. And after all, the, after the choice was made, it would, they would go into a period of time that was known as betrothal. Betrothal is a little bit different from engagement. It's a lot, a lot more locked in. In fact, legally, you're considered husband and wife. And so in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph, while betrothed, engaged is a very poor translation in the NIV because it carries the wrong connotation in our day. While he is betrothed to Mary, he is called the husband 
of Mary. Very, very interesting. And it was a time of preparation. It was usually for 12 months where the man would go and he would prepare a place for his bride. And of course, the Bible uses this imagery to describe what the Lord Jesus is doing for us. He has left and he has gone away for a period of time to prepare a place for us. Now, if during the betrothal period, one member had been unfaithful, it demanded a certificate of divorce. In fact, they had to legally put the person away. And in most cases, of course, that never happened. And so at the end of the 12-month period, the groom would come back with his groomsmen. Jews always did this at night. In fact, to this day, most Jews still get married in the night. It's a candlelight ceremony. It goes back to the traditions of Old Testament and early New Testament days. And so the groom would come with his groomsmen. It was a torchlight procession. And his coming would be preceded by a trumpet sound. And of course, the maidens would be ready with their lanterns lit for the coming of the bridegroom. And of course, the Lord Jesus in Matthew 25 tells a parable based on this cultural practice of this day. And again, it's a picture of Christ's relationship with us. He's gone to prepare a place for us. He will come back with his holy angels preceded by the trump of God. He will gather his bride, the church, and then we shall be with him forever. Now, when the groom came with his groomsmen and he met his bride and her maidens, they would begin a wedding ceremony that lasted for several days. And unlike in our day, the groom and his family were responsible for serving and meeting all of the needs that this of he and his guests that lasted about a week. I know what some of you guys are thinking, yeah, man, I got four daughters, that's the way it ought to be. <laughs> well, I got four sons, and I like the way it is. <laughs> In either case, it sounded like a really neat week-long event, just as long as you didn't have to pay for it. So here they are in Cana. Jesus' mother, Mary, is there. And in addition, we're told in verse 2, and Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. Jesus, his mother, his disciples, all invited to the same wedding, suggesting there was probably a relative or a close friend that were involved. Now, our Lord was not a recluse. He accepted invitations to social events. In fact, his enemies would take that and turn it around on him. This man receives sinners and eats with them, the Pharisees would say. But our Lord entered into the normal day, everyday experiences of life, and it was really his presence that sanctified those events. And there's really something beautiful about this unnamed, unknown couple and that they invite the Lord Jesus to this special occasion. And I think it is so tragic today when the Lord Jesus is left out of a wedding, when he is really not invited. After all, he is the author of marriage. He thought it all up. He ought to be invited. God ought to be at the center of every marriage ceremony. And there would be far few... Um, fewer unbroken marriages if from the start a couple acknowledged the lordship of God over their home. Now that's the site of the miracle. Let's move on now to the situation for the miracle. What was the situation for the miracle? Look, if you will, now in verse 3. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, in those days, to run out of wine would not have been considered a good thing. Today, if you run out of punch at a wedding, that's yeah, not 
uh, a disaster. You can just drink water if need be. But in that day, it was a dreadful embarrassment. And don't forget that the Jewish wedding feast lasted about a week, and it was necessary for the groom to have adequate provisions. And it would be embarrassing for the groom to run out either of food or wine. And, and the family to be guilty of such goshery would really break the common everyday standards of hospitality, hospitality in that day. So to run out of wine was really an awful thing. In either case, Mary is very in tune to the situation. And so she says in verse 3, the wine gave out. Or, or we're told in verse 3, the wine gave out. I, I like the way it reads. It, it's just gone. Now, she's obviously playing a very prominent part in this wedding. Some have speculated that this was one of her daughters, that this was one of her children that her and Joseph had. Now, I know the thought rubs some of my Roman Catholic friends raw because they teach what's called the perpetual virginity of Mary. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Now, like Catholics, we affirm and believe very clearly that the Lord Jesus was virgin conceived and virgin born. But anyone who has read the Bible carefully understands that afterwards, Mary and Joseph had normal everyday marital relations. In Matthew 1, we're told Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. In fact, you read the rest of Scripture, you discover they had at least six children together. For instance, in Matthew 13, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, and Simon, Judas? They're, they're named. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Christ had at least four named brothers. Sisters is here in the plural, which means at least two sisters. So including the Lord Jesus, there are seven people, seven children in this family where Joseph and Mary gave leadership. Now, this passage this morning, this chapter is going to indicate that he had other members in his family. Verse 12, drop down to it. After this, he, the Lord Jesus, went down to Capernaum, he and his mother, and his brothers separate from his disciples. And there they stayed a few days. So the perpetual virginity of Mary is not a biblical doctrine. It's man-made. In fact, it's anti-scriptural. But here's Mary, however, playing a very prominent role. And some are very dogmatic that this is one of her daughters. Well, that's pure supposition. We don't know that. Could very well be. Could have been the half-sister of Christ. But that doesn't seem to jive with my thinking anyway, because in verse 2 it says he was invited. No need to invite your, your, your brother, so to speak. That would be a given. Yet, nonetheless, Mary is very close either to the bride or the bridegroom to have such a personal concern concerning the success of this wedding. And when the wine's depleted, she steps in. Now, that would be very inappropriate, both then and now, for guests to take over, unless, of course, you're very much attached to the situation. Weddings in this day were a family affair, and typically female relatives of the bride or close members of the family were usually helpers or put in charge of the food and the drink. In either case, she's aware of the need before it becomes evident to the head caterer, if I can use that term. She was in charge of the, the kitchen. She's in charge of the food and the drink. And so naturally, she turns to the Lord Jesus for help. She says, they have no wine. 
If you enjoyed today's message, remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 005. Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.